What we see um, right at the moment is community drive to actually have a just transition, to actually bring the whole community on a journey. And that communities will only really demand a just transition when they can see themselves in a just transition. Uh, everyone's affected by a just transition or the lack of a just transition. We're working with the local power stations, but what we're all saying is we all need the certainty from governments. We need the regulations, we need the support to make sure that we move forward together and we're not left behind. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining you all on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and to acknowledge the ancestral lands that we are all joining from and to pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Thank you all for joining us this evening for the panel discussion, Why Can't We Talk About a Just Transition from Coal in Australia, hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute. The Sydney Environment Institute is a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research. It brings together key thinkers from the university and beyond to address critical environmental challenges. My name is Susan Park. I'm a professor of global governance at the University of Sydney and research lead on the Sydney Environment Institute project, Unsettling Resources. This event is part of the SEI's new event series, Communities on the Frontline, which explores the impacts of a transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy on a range of communities. The event series links multiple SEI research projects from unsettling resources to grounded imaginaries and highlights the work of the Institute in examining how systemic changes affect people. The event this evening unpacks why it is so difficult to talk about a just transition from coal in Australia. We have an outstanding panel here for you this evening to unpack this concept and what it means for our coal dependence. The panel is timely given the release of a report titled A Just Transition from Coal in Australia by Dr Gareth Edwards, Dr Claire Hanmer, myself, Dr Robert McNeil and a team of researchers including Jan Kusik-Riker in seeking to understand Australia's position. This is a report funded by the British Academy. Now this is coming at a critical juncture in human history. Yesterday the IPCC released its third instalment of its sixth assessment report. It highlights that it is now or never for us to drastically transition to a low carbon economy. Greenhouse gas emissions must peak by 2025 to stay within the 1.5 degree guardrail. Should we exceed this, as we are currently on track to do, then the effects of climate breakdown may be irreversible. We are, of course, already witnessing the multiplier effect of climate change with more extreme weather events, bushfires, flooding, among others. The IPCC report states that coal must be phased out, but this is not the message we are hearing in Australia. Diplomatic pressure is now increasing, with the UN Secretary-General Antonio Gutierrez calling Australia a holdout for its dependence on coal, which he calls a stupid investment. While we've seen announcements from some privately owned coal-fired power plants to close early, the federal government remains committed to subsidising coal and coal infrastructure. This is, of course, juxtaposed to the Australians that are battling the extreme effects of climate change at 1.1 degrees of warming. So to help us make sense of this are our three panellists. Gareth Edwards is an Associate Professor in the School of International Development at the University of East Anglia, 
whose research focuses on understanding and theorising justice in the context of environmental governance dilemmas. Gareth is an SEI Fellow and, as part of his Leverhulme International Fellowship, examines how justice arguments are mobilised in discussions about coal's future in Australia and India, particularly those that are supportive of ongoing coal extraction. And, of course, he is the lead author of the British Academy-funded report, A Just Transition from Coal in Australia. Wendy Farmer is the president of Voices of the Valley, a community advocacy group that formed during the catastrophic 2014 Hazelwood Brown Coal Mine Fire in Victoria. Wendy came together with Outreach Community members to speak up. Their story is detailed in the award-winning book by Tom Doig, Hazelwood, and the documentary Our Power. Voices of the Valley advocacy work has led to notably the Hazelwood Mine Fire Inquiries and EPA Victoria Reform. Wendy is a board member of The Next Economy, as well as part of Transition Australia team, and a community campaigner in Gippsland with Friends of the Earth, Yes to Renewables team. Jan Kusik-Riker is a PhD student at the University of Sydney Business School, where his research examines the role of community-owned renewable energy in Australia's low-carbon transition. His work considers the relations that govern the ownership and the use of renewable energy, as well as the tensions that exist between competing understandings of community energy. Jan has written on the challenges to building post-capitalist alternatives and reimagining well-being as separate from economic growth in the context of globalisation. I'm going to turn to you first, Gareth, to tell us what exactly is a just transition? Thanks, Susan, and thanks for the introduction. So the, the term just transition emerged in the 1970s and 1980s in North America, um, where it was a, an idea that sought to bring together the, uh, the labour movement and the environmental movement in the context of the closure of polluting industries. So uh, in the words of Brian Kohler, who was a secretary of the Energy and Paperworkers Union of Canada in 1996, he said, if society must make some tough choices about which economic activities we're willing to continue and which we're willing to forego, a structured transition or a just transition program is necessary if the costs of those decisions are to be shared fairly. And he went on to say, you know, capital has other options, it can disinvest, but people, workers don't have other option, options. And in 1997, uh, the Oil and Atomic Workers Union of the United States adopted the first resolution calling for a just transition, uh, building on the work of Tony Mazzocchi and other uh, union leaders. But more recently, just transition has become something that's been talked about predominantly in the context of uh, transition in the context of climate change. So in 2008, the UNEP, the International Labour Organization, and the International Trade Union Confederation uh, published a report called Green Jobs, um, in which they sought to set out what a, a just transition would mean in the context of the climate change transition. And that focused on employment. In Australia, the concept came late, uh, rather later, and has been shaped both by the union movement, uh, the environmental movement, and in particular, the sort of peculiar fossil fuel and climate politics of Australia. Thanks, Gareth. Perhaps I can turn to you, Wendy. What has the just transi transition been like for you, particularly in light of your experiences with Hazelwood? Communities really need... Um to be listened to actually. Communities often know what um, is happening in their own neighbourhood, what, what their community is made of, what the needs are. 
What we what we see um, right at the moment is community drive to actually have a just transition, to actually bring the whole community on a journey. What we don't see, though, is local, state and definitely federal government actually supporting community transitions. In fact, what we need is clear guidelines, clear regulations to, to what... Um, what can be done, that we are moving, that we are transitioning, yet we continue to see federal government throw money into whether it be coal or gas or and really confuse the line of what is actually needed. So we're seeing, you mentioned earlier, where companies are actually saying we are transitioning, we are moving to renewable energies, we are doing it, we want guidelines, we need a plan. You know, we've just recently had inquiries into the closure of Hazewood and Yalorn, and one of the clear things there was we need a plan, we need certainty. We actually don't need mixed messages. We need governments to stand up and actually support communities to have a good transition, to actually see our energy transition from what we were doing 100 years ago to what the new energies are, and we need that support for, for regional communities. That's great. So, Jan, if, if we can bring you in here now, what sort of community engagement is necessary for a Just Transition? Um, yeah, well, I think with Just Transitions, um, the, the early reasoning around the, the concept was addressing the, the sort of jobs versus environment narrative. And I think that the space for community in there is that Just Transitions, or at least in the way that it's been positioned in Australia, um, needs to, I think, reckon more sincerely with some of those losses. Um, and I think as, as practitioners and as researchers, our job in that space is to kind of address that there's, there's a plurality of approaches that are, constitu that are constitutive of a just transition um, and that communities will only really demand a just transition when they can see themselves in a just transition. Um, so while communities should be the driving force that determines what a just transition looks like, I also don't want to completely celebrate communities and community engagement and say that they can do it on their own because there's a very important role here um, for the state and that's something that's kind of addressed in, in just transitions literature. Um, so I think the state needs to provide a supportive framework through which communities can pursue these ends. Um, but also that framework needs to acknowledge that a community's capacity to pursue a just transition and the obstacles that a community faces, um, they vary tremendously from community to community. Um, so that sort of support needs to be quite targeted as well. Okay, well, let's unpack this a little bit in a little bit more detail. If we are going to talk about how we achieve a just transition, Gareth, could you give us an idea of what sort of parties are affected by a just transition? Yeah, I mean... All of us is the, the simple answer. Uh, everyone's affected by a just transition or the lack of a just transition. I guess specifically in Australia, the uh, regional communities uh, are key in, in terms of the effects of a just transition on them and also in their ability to effect a just transition. And there's a number of, more broadly, a number of key stakeholders that are involved in shaping uh, the ability for us to have a just transition. Obviously, communities are one. Campaigners are other. Another, uh, the labour movement. I've already mentioned the union movement as the originator of the term originally. Governments, and we'll come back to the the role or the lack of a role of governments in Australia at all levels. 
our industry actors themselves. So with respect to coal, that means coal miners, it means coal-fired um, power station operators, it means the service um, businesses, that the engineering companies and so on that service these industries and right down to the, um, the industries that are dependent on uh, broader employment. So, you know, the takeaway food shops, the clothes shops, all of the economic activity that's built uh, in a community. And the final group that's um, coming up as a key stakeholder is investors in terms of shaping just transition agendas in Australia. You're absolutely right. There are a number of stakeholders involved, but we are all affected. Wendy, if I go to you, um, Jan pointed out it's not just a jobs versus environment thing, but how how do communities, um, you know, what do communities need in order to transition? Communities really need... Um to be listened to actually. Communities often know what um, is happening in their own neighbourhood, what, what their community is made of, what the needs are. What we, what we see um, right at the moment is community drive to actually have a just transition, to actually bring the whole community on a journey. What we don't see though is local, state and definitely federal government actually supporting community transitions. In fact, what we need is clear guidelines, clear regulations to, to what, um, what can be done, that we are moving, that we are transitioning, yet we continue to see federal government throw money into whether it be coal or gas or, and really confuse the line of what is actually needed. So we're seeing, you mentioned earlier, where companies are actually saying we are transitioning, we are moving to renewable energies, we are doing it. We want guidelines. We actually want some, we, we need a plan. You know, we've just recently had inquiries into the closure of Hayeswood and Yalorn. And one of the clear things there was we need a plan. We need certainty. We actually don't need mixed messages. We need governments to stand up and actually support communities to have a good transition, to actually see our energy transition from what we were doing 100 years ago to what the new energies are. And we need that support for, for regional communities. That's fantastic. I mean, quite often we hear from industries that they want certainty from governments generally to be able to plan ahead, particularly in terms of the longer timeframes that are necessary for things like coal, coal-fired power plants. But you're saying communities also need that in order to be able to make decisions around you know, regional communities and the future of people living in those communities. Um, can I ask you uh, a little bit more about how communities are organising? Communities like ourselves are actually just getting together and talking about what the future is. We're actually putting submissions into governments to say, we need more. This is what we need you to do for us. Um, I'm actually sitting in Yarram, which is the, basically the home to Australia's first offshore wind farm. Well, we're hoping it will be. We've heard yesterday we've got some new... Um, plans that, you know, Gippsland will be first. Um, and I've been touring that wind farm today. And so communities are actually rallying together. Communities are saying what they need. They're working with industries. We're working with the local power stations. But what we're all saying is we all need the certainty from governments. We need the regulations. We need the support to make sure that we move forward together and we're not left behind. Because the problem with regional communities, they're feeling they're left behind. They're feeling that 
they may have produced the energy for the last 100 years in Victoria, but now all of a sudden things are changing and we have the confusing message and we are being left behind and we don't want to be left behind. So we're actually powering our communities up to actually take action to make sure that we aren't. It's a really powerful message. I think that's really um, a, a key issue here is that communities want to be listened to. They don't want to be left behind. But maybe, Jan, if I can go to you, um, you know, Gareth did point out that this idea originally came out of uh, out of the union movement. But, of course, the, the landscape is is a lot more than that, isn't it? It's, it's not just communities as, as, a, as an entity versus um, the trade union movement. What sort of um, different ways can we understand sort of public ownership and control of energy? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that public ownership and public control of assets plays a really large role in just transitions narratives. Um, first of all, I think production just needs to be um, subordinated um, to kind of address the needs of people and the ecosystem more broadly, um, rather than those of profit. Um, and the issue with just transitions, at least as it's currently formulated in Australia, is that as long as the actors that are currently benefiting from the status quo um, are the same ones that are steering the transition, it's unlikely that we're going to get transformative state, um, transformative change, because why would they? They're, they're benefiting from the status quo. Um, so we may get a transition of sorts, but it's unlikely to be just, which is something that kind of Gareth touches on there. Um, so what we're seeing is this emphasis on creating new sites of accumulation rather than transforming power relations. Um, so that's why this, this emphasis on public ownership and control is key there. Um, you can see that in examples where, where, where companies and kind of powerful actors in this space are really eager to discuss the rollout of renewable energy, even companies that have kind of dragged their feet on the transition. Increasingly, it's very easy, it's appealing to talk about um, renewable energy and the, the move to a, a kind of a green economy, um, but we're not so eager to discuss the winding down of fossil fuels and what that will look like. In fact, most people kind of want to wash their hands of that and, and leave that off of their plate. So again, the, the focus on um, public ownership and control can also help shift conversations away from just kind of the, the fetishization of jobs in the abstract and can contribute to um, developing a, a, a green labor agenda that just goes beyond um, direct employment in renewable energy in industries. Um, so I think that renewable energy jobs should be placed within a much wider jobs plan um, and that should kind of reach across health, education, housing, um, transport and manufacturing and you can kind of see this in proposals for um, a Green New Deal that, that brings together a lot of these things. So a lot of intersections there would just transition. Um, and likewise, in the energy space in Australia, at least our experience has been um, doing away with a liberalized energy market is unrealistic, given that Australia set on this path not that, not that long ago, that the NAM is relatively young, uh, 20 or so years. Um, so while it's unrealistic to do that, um, I think there are spaces within that um, that you know, we, can, we can make change. So for instance, um, government procurement through power purchase agreements is, is a big area um, where we can kind of um, address a bit of that public ownership and control, if not giving the space completely back to the, the public as much as I would love to see that. Um, so in, in New York State, for instance, um, with their, what, what Wendy was bringing up with offshore wind, the way that they've allocated a lot of their offshore wind, their power purchase agreements require 
um, public sector wages in that space, local employment, national procurement strategies, union agreements. So all of those things can be packaged as part of PPAs, and, and we can talk about a just transition um, in that respect. Um, and that's how the state can kind of support public ownership and control without doing away with the whole liberalized energy market as we kind of have at the moment. Thank you, Jan. I think that's uh, that's that's really great, talking about a wider jobs plan and what this means, not only in transitioning away from coal to renewable energy, but as part of a broader understanding of the role of regions in Australia and, and, and what sort of uh, work can be done. I want to turn now to Gareth. Um, as the lead author of the um, just Transitions from Coal in Australia, a report funded by the British Academy. Can you give us an idea of what the main findings are? Yeah, absolutely. I can boil it all down to five points and one warning. And so the first, the first key finding is just that just transition in Australia is a toxic term, unlike elsewhere where it builds allegiances between, well, early on between unionists and environmentalists, but in other places between different elements of society. Uh, here, you're just as likely to get kind of a visceral negative reaction if you talk about just transition, particularly in uh, regional areas. And it seems that just transition has been quite effectively poisoned as a term by a small and I'd say shrinking number of very loud voices who have personal or political reasons for arguing against transition. But whether they like it or not, transition is already underway in Australia, uh, both in the domestic electricity generation sector and the export coal industry. And so there's a need for the term to either be uh, rehabilitated or new terms to be developed um, by those who subscribe to the basic tenets of just transition thinking. So number one, just transition is a toxic term in Australia. Number two is that there's two coal industries in Australia, and they're really driven by different political and economic logics. The first I've already mentioned, Wendy's extremely familiar with this, it's the domestic power generation industry. And there, you know, there's a very few people who are not willing to talk about transition. And that's mainly because the generators themselves, mostly privatised, as Jan was saying, have said, we're not going to be around forever. And in fact, we're closing sooner rather than later. Uh, it's quite telling that the the most optimistic proje projections for how long these generators are going to uh, keep running for are coming not from the generators themselves, but by, from governments. Um, so, you know, Hazelwood was five years ago now that it closed down. Araring on the shore of Lake Macquarie just announced it's going to close down in three years. So the challenge in that sector is to make that transition that's already underway a just transition. But that's also just a drop in the bucket when it comes to Australia's coal production. Uh, the export coal mining industry is by far the dominant industry in Australia. 90% of Australia's coal is exported, either for thermal power generation overseas or for uh, as an input for steel production and other industrial processes. Most of it for thermal uh, power generation, despite the fact that metallurgical coal is in, terms, in value terms more significant. And it's here that the, the need for a transition is more contested. And I'd argue um, our findings suggest that's mostly because of geography and that there's the distance to markets and the shielding effect of the international seaborne coal price 
protects um, coal miners from having to have those conversations with their workers. So, you know, it's been all over the media that the coal price has gone. It's spiked above 500 US dollars a ton and it's now just under 300 US dollars a ton. And so everyone says, well, we're going to keep exporting coal forever. Australia has the best coal, uh, the best quality coal. That's why it's called the Newcastle Benchmark. Um, So there's a contestation there around Australia's coal generation, uh, coal export, coal industry. But even there, if you look at the major miners, Glencore says it's going to wind down, responsibly wind down, as its terminology, its coal infrastructure. Glencore own, owns uh, 16 or 17 mines in New South Wales and Queensland. It's the biggest coal producer in Australia. And by contrast, BHP says, actually, we're getting out of thermal coal entirely and we're only going to keep developing our metallurgical coal. So there's different strategies within the industry, but there's an acknowledgement that Australia's export coal is not here forever. So just transitions to toxic term. There's two coal industries. They have to be thought about separately. Thirdly, the major barrier to a just transition in Australia is politics and particularly the absence of government leadership. And that's government leadership actually in a both a discursive sense and a material sense. It's about what government says and also about what government does. And it's government at all levels, but particularly the federal government. Wendy's already mentioned it. The federal government is completely missing in action, willfully and negligently so. And it seems that in Australia, the climate wars, the so-called climate wars, have created this situation where it's difficult to initiate conversations about transition and that if you try to do so, you're inevitably um, treated with suspicion. I think that's changing, actually. I think even in the last year that that started to change a bit. And the, the, the observation that we can make there, too, is you don't actually have to talk about climate change to talk about transition. You know, if you're concerned about climate change, you might necessarily be concerned about transition, but you don't have to be, uh, you know, a climate change person to talk about transition. The economy, the global economy is changing and there's other ways to introduce that narrative. So despite the fact that politics are the major barrier, communities, unions, campaigners, industry and investors are all talking about transition not using the term transition most of the time not certainly not using the term just transition but these conversations are going on all the time and it's only paradoxically it's only in sort of public forums where people don't feel able to talk about just transition for the risk of attracting the kind of the heat that comes with that term in australia so point one the toxic uh, terminology toxic terminology two coal industries politics the major barrier fourthly we need to broaden our discussion about transition it came out of uh, just transition came out of the labor movement but we can't just limit our consideration to the labor movement to jobs versus the environment we need to think about livelihoods and communities in addition to jobs and workers So in Australia, framing just transition in terms of communities and not just workers is a really productive uh, way forward. There's, I mean, 
two things to just um, almost asides to observe at this point is uh, the groups that are not mentioned in Australian just transition discourse such as it is at the moment, which was interesting from our project. Two key groups that are not paid sufficient attention to and really need to be included in the discussion are women, for a start. The just transition discourse does tend to be very male-dominated. Some of the industry is very male-dominated, so that's perhaps understandable. But most of the people most uh, affected by just transition first Uh, are not males. And the other group are um, First Nations and Indigenous people. There's almost no discussion at all came up in our project of the role of First Nations, Australia's Indigenous people in a just transition and also the effects uh, of our current energy system on uh, those people. So just transition is a sort of future-oriented idea. It just takes what we have now as given and tries to move to something that it sees as better. But as one of our researchers, you know, Milena kept saying in our, in our meetings, yeah, we've also got to think about the past. How did we get to this present that we're in at the moment, an unjust present? So finally, the fifth kind of key finding, there's a critical need to give substance to the term just transition. You can't poison a term so effectively if it's very clear what that term means. It's very clear the situation that we are in and the mechanisms for getting to a future. Whether that's about local jobs and the kinds of industries they're going to be in, in places like the Latrobe or the Hunter or in Queensland, whether it's about you know, the way that the energy system needs to change. So there's just this critical need to give substance to the term just transition. Rather than just saying abstractively, abstractly as a quite tempting, we need a just transition without going the next step and saying a just transition from our current energy system to a new energy system, which is going to be characterized by, and it may be a sweet solar, wind, geothermal, all kinds of different energy inputs in different places. As part of this, there's a sort of need to acknowledge the uncertainty of the situation too. So you know, transition is always an uncertain process. We never know exactly where the end destination will be or the in the barriers we might encounter on the way. So acknowledging that uncertainty is just a, about being honest and helps engage those um, discussions. And also the just the justice question. It's tempting to say, well, it's just too hard to talk about justice, so we will just leave that aside. I think a more productive approach is to actually address it head on to say these there's justice issues in the way that we manage this transition and these are the ones that we know about and that we're trying to work on and are there others I ask for our feedback on what the others are from the people we're talking to and the last uh, a kind of observation in re- in regard to giving substance to the term just transition is the last thing we want to do is tr- treat communities as victims So the regional communities in Australia are often um, discussed uh, as the places that need to transition or that transition is going to happen to. But communities who currently have a major role in supplying energy in the form of coal have the skills and the ability to actually shape the future energy sources that we're going to depend on in Australia and that the world's going to depend on. They have skills and they have insights that we can use in planning for new kinds of 
energy, whether it's the Star of the South that Wendy uh, mentioned, the offshore wind farm in Bass Strait, or whether it's battery installations, whether it's um, solar installations in other parts of, uh, of Australia. So the regional communities, which are often seen as requiring transition or requiring planning, both kind of very uh, demotivating terms, are actually full of people whose skills and expertise will be invaluable in helping us shift our energy systems. They only become victims if we don't prioritize a just transition. And that's the final, that's the warning that I want to, um, to end on. The alternative to a just transition is a disorderly transition. Transition is happening in Australia, whether we like it or not. We can either plan for it, talk about it and make it a just transition, or we can leave it, we can wash our hands, leave it to the market. There'll be a transition, but it'll be a disorderly transition. And I sometimes give the example of um, property developers when they go bust as a way to try and explain this. It's not a perfect analogy, but I say, who the, who's the first person that really feels the pain when a profit, property developer goes bust? It's not the developer. It's not the people who bought the property. It's the tradies. It's the plumber and the bricklayer and the electrician who've all come in. They've given their labor. They haven't been paid yet and they don't get paid. And the, the directors of that company, you know, they'll bring in um, administrators, they'll wind up the company, they'll try and, you know, find the value that's there and distribute it back to the shareholders. The director has probably got his, his or her affairs structured in such a way that they don't personally suffer, uh, even though they might, they might not be able to serve as a director for five years, whatever it is. But it's the people who are most affected right at the beginning that's that's where the disorderly transition comes in. So that's the alternative. So there's the sort of five, I guess, key findings uh, and one warning. And the warning. Thank you very much, Gareth. Um, I'd really like to open it up to Q&A. So if you do have a question, please put it into the Q&A box that you've seen down the bottom of your screen. While, while people are doing that, I've got a question for you, Jan. Um, it's already been answered by Fergus in, in the sidebar here that one of the reasons why we aren't talking about a transition, uh, a just transition in Australia is because the federal government has an implicit policy uh, for more coal and gas production for export. Jan, what's your take on this? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, that's a good point. And I think it can kind of be a simple conversation, just leaving it at that, that there's consistent support for the exploitation of Australia's coal and natural gas resources, regardless of, you know, which side of politics you, you fall on, which of the major sides, at least. Um, so I, I guess, you know, the most recent example of this was Labour's backflip on um, the Curry Curry gas plant and, and kind of the, the original pushback against the coalition's um, gas-fired recovery, um, but they, they sort of have reneged on that promise and have agreed that they would support that gas expansion as well. Um, the other half of it is sort of what, what Gareth has touched on um, in that we, we need um, a just transition for something to be a transition before you can transition to something. There needs to be a plan, um, and to put a plan in place, there needs to be some sort of dialogue or discussion in terms of what that transition is going to look like, what we're transitioning to. And as Wendy brought up, um, communities need to be involved in that process and not just 
um, sort of tokenistically involved, but they need to they need to be the head of that process. Um, and like I try to bring up in, in my past point, um, those communities um, vary tremendously across Australia um, and have very different sort of viewpoints of what that looks like and different needs and visions for their own community. And that needs to sort of be um, respected as well. Um, but instead, we have this focus on um, a market-led sort of restructuring um, and, you know, the, the federal government's emphasis on a technology-first approach um, is, is kind of evidence of that. Um, but the shortcomings, as, as you brought up earlier, Susan, as well, um, were that even, even market actors are kind of calling for more policy certainty in this space, um, in the energy space, for, for sure. That's been um, longstanding. So that's, that's a key part of the issue. Um, the other half of it is Australia has sort of entrenched itself in the, the heart of the sort of global fossil fuel um, economy. So being the largest exporter of um, LNG, um, the second, if not the largest exporter of coal, um, we're on the whole the third largest fossil fuel exporters behind like Russia and Saudi Arabia. Um, so that that creates a, a problematic transition, given how, you know, as, as Gareth brought up earlier, how invested um, we are, the, the history of it, how long we've been in, in the business, right? Um, so to get out of that, that, that pickle, um, I think one of, the, one of the key points or one of the key learnings that we can take away from this is that um, the, the concept of, of just transition is contested um, and it, the, there, there needs to be some, some work done to not just clarify, but I think um, reclaim the, the concept. Um, when we talk about the concept having been poisoned, um, I, I don't think it's worth throwing away some of the, the original aspirations um, that were attached to that concept and say, you know, that's, we, we can no longer work with those. Those are, those are no longer valuable. So I think that this idea of reclaiming just transitions um, is important and, you know, the, the sort of incumbent business interests in Australia at the moment have been quite successful in remaking what, what constitutes what is just within a just transition. Um, so attempting to realize a just transition through um, market-based mechanisms alone um, doesn't really create an even playing field for, um, for civil society, for communities. Um, and obviously, you know, corporations or, or large businesses tend to tend to win out when people have to vote with their wallet because they have much larger wallets than than communities. Um, so, yeah, communities tend to get relegated to the margins because they lack power in these arenas. Um, in in my research, looking at community energy, um, communities often need to um, they need to partner on these projects, and partnerships are. Are essential, but they also demand compromise, and they depend on extracting concessions from those more powerful actors. Um, which means that communities are, are, you know, they never have the stronger hand typically, um, and that's where I, I believe there's, you know, a much larger role for the for the state to be played. Um, but on the other hand, in Australia, the state seems to be siding with, you know, corporations as you know, the, the heroes of this narrative. So you can see that when we talk about people like um, Twiggy Forrest and, and Mike Kennan Brooks and, and the Elon Musks, um, they're very much the, the sort of the stars in, in what a just transition will look like. And, and you know, it, it's the idea that they're going to usher in this, this glorious green energy future. And I'm, I'm quite skeptical of that. And I think a lot of communities across Australia um, are also skeptical. 
Um, so I think it's, it's useful to, to think about justice more concretely and the way that, the most helpful way that, that I've kind of come across this was um, looking at justice in terms of um, recognition, participation, and redistribution. So th those three kind of key points have been helpful to clarify my thinking on, on how we think about justice within a just transition. And the problems to each of those in Australia are that the federal government sort of refuses to recognize that a transition is underway, or if it is, it, it doesn't want to kind of engage with it more wholeheartedly. Um, in terms of participation, the community and worker voices um, tend to be generally marginalized in, in those discussions. And as for the redistribution part, um, that redistribution is, is generally narrowly focused on job losses. Um, and it fails to address the broader socioeconomic impacts um, within and across communities in Australia. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say to build on um, Jan's point earlier, one of the interesting things from our project was that it didn't matter where anyone was on the political spectrum. Everyone thought government at all levels needed to be more involved in shaping and planning for a just transition. There was a bit of love for state governments from some people, there was a little bit of love for local governments, but there was no love for the federal government from anyone. And, you know, when when you have the, the, the coal industry saying the government should have a plan for a transition, then really the government needs to have such a plan. It sort of comes back to very early in this um, webinar, there was a question about um, how Australia's situation differs from that in, in Germany. And often... Germany and the Ruhr Valley is held up as the kind of the trophy of just transition um, planning. And the interesting thing about that is that I think the people who actually campaigned for just transition in Germany, they didn't necessarily think they'd done a great job or made a great success of it when it happened. But then in hindsight, they went, oh, actually, we managed to do this quite well. And yes, there is a particular, a, a different kind of form of capitalism, perhaps in Germany than in Australia. You've got to think of Australia as an extractive state. It's much, it's much, much, much more like some of the states in Latin America and in, in Africa where extraction is seen as the underpinning of the sort of social contract. And it's been like that ever since Europeans arrived in Australia. You know, Australia rode to wealth on the, the sheep's back, supposedly. And it, it was uh, fossil fuels, essentially, and iron ore, which kept us out of uh, recession in 2008. But I think there's also some questions for Wendy that um, I'd like to give her to some time to answer. But one I wanted to go to um, for you, Wendy, from Kimberley is whether or not you've seen a change in government acceptance of local knowledge in shaping the transition planning uh, since you've been working in this area. Definitely in the state government. Um, for so the Victoria, I mean, in, in Victoria, for people that aren't aware of that, we've really been able to influence some of um, the decisions that the federal, the state government have done. In fact, the community, um, we have what we call a Tri Valley Authority, which was set up to support workers as they um, move from um, Hazelwood. With you know five months months notice, you're closing down. There was a plan put put in place, that plan actually came from the community. So gov the Victorian government is starting to listen. Are they doing it completely right? Of course they're not doing it completely right, but they are working with communities. Um, I just want to, in and on top of that, in that other question, is 
someone says about their head in the sand for um, coal communities, you know, and that's what we saw in um, Victoria, uh, the head in the sand. We used to quote it like that, you know, while there was writing on the wall to say that Hayeswood would close, nobody believed that Hayeswood would close. We can't control what happens when international companies own our coal or own our industries, own basically the jobs and they can take them when they want to take them. And that's what we saw in the Latrobe Valley. It was an international company that decided that they were going to change, move away from coal and they closed with five months notice. Yes, there was warnings. Yes, heaps of people had their head in the sand. I guess the warning I have for other communities, if you don't talk about transition, if you don't talk about what happens next, you will be left behind like Quattro Valley was in privatisation and then in a five-month closure. We can talk about it. As communities, we can plan for what our futures are. We can't change the past. We can plan for what our futures are. We can demand that we do have a just transition and it works for your community. The same as, you know, we talk about two different parts of um, coal where we have those that burn coal, Latrobe Valley and other areas that burn the coal. But there's all that, also that export. It's still de demanded by international markets. International markets we've seen before have stopped boats where coal has not been able to leave the country. It could be overnight that they decide that we get the warning we don't want your coal anymore. And what happens to those workers? So how do we prepare as communities to be ready for when this happens? Because it's going to happen. China and India are creating so much renewable energy now, they're not going to want our coal forever. We may have federal politics say we're going to export for years and years and years. It's not going to happen. Be warned. One day they will stop the boats and it'll be the stopping the boats of the coal going out. Thanks, Wendy. It's good that you've been able to address two of the questions that have been uh, posed. I've got another one for you from Catherine, who wanted to know whether or not uh, how communities feel when they're critiqued by external actors like the UN. Do they feel defensive or sympathetic about being coal exporters and workers? Look, sometimes communities start feeling now that they're a little bit like they are, they're the dirty people because they're in coal and, you know, coal has got this bad name when we we start talking about climate change and that communities want support to actually move forward so having actors in there like the un that are actually having a open dialogue about what is happening that that un have oh sorry um uk have not come to us and said this is what you must do they've worked with coal communities and that's a difference when you know the people on this um webinar now have actually gone in and working with communities rather than telling communities what they need. We don't know regional community, no coal community needs to be told what they need. They need people to work with them to help them through this transition. As Gareth said, this transition is happening. It's not going to slow down. It's only going to speed up. How can we all work together to make sure that, it's, that it is successful for all coal communities? Thank you, Wendy. I'm going to put three questions in one to each of you on the panel, and then that's going to take us up to time. So the question is, please bear note, everyone, and a, and a quick response from all of you. What is, is there, is a transition from coal qualitatively different? Is it too late? And can we connect 
reconciliation with First Nations to any form of just transition. So I'm going to ask all three of you to take a quick stab at that before we have to wind up. But there are way too many wonderful questions uh, from from our from our audience. So Gareth, do you want to have a quick shot at that one? The transition is only different because the political context is different. The challenge of transitions is always social more than it is technical. That would be question one. Uh, no, it's not too late. The question uh, that's prime in my mind at the moment is actually not whether there's going to be a transition. It's whether who's going to get burnt during the transition, to put it bluntly. And that's why I think we advocate for a just transition so that those who are most able to pay the costs are the ones who pay the costs, not those least able to pay the costs. The question of um, Australia's settlement with its Indigenous people is obviously open and much broader than just a just transition question. I think it has to be considered. And I think the fact that the way that we have got into a current you know, our energy state um, is only through the same processes that lead to other processes of dispossession uh, in terms of uh, Indigenous people in Australia. I don't know if we can fix it through a just transition, but I think we certainly need to have our eyes open to the fact that First Nations people are affected and women are affected, and that's not the case nearly often enough in just transition conversations in Australia that I've seen so far. Excellent. Thanks, Gareth. Wendy, do you want to take a stab at one, two or three? Or Is it different? It's different because it's been made political. I'll agree with um, Gareth. You know, the closure of Hazelwood, we heard for two, three, four years about how bad the closure of Hazelwood was on the energy market instead of actually taking action to do something about energy. Um, is it too late? No, it's not too late. I think lessons can be learned from other communities and we must learn those lessons and... The transition is happening. I mean, we can't stop it. How do we make sure that communities aren't left behind in that transition? And look, we definitely need to include First Nations. First Nations, you know, this is their land. It was never ceded. And they, you know, they know how to treat this land. They know how to move forward. We need to do it together. Thank you, Wendy. Jan, final final comments. Well, yeah, I think just echoing what Gareth and, and Wendy said earlier about is it qualitatively different? Um, the politics of it makes it different in that respect. Um, but as to how it compares to, to other transitions, I mean, there were comments over like, why all of this hand wringing and, and plur, um, pearl clutching over the, the coal and fossil fuel industry? We've had other transitions in the past, so like the automotive, um, the, the, the industrialization there. And I think why? Why put so much more care and effort into this one? The simple answer is because I think it's the right thing to do. Um, we've we've failed in the past, um, but I think it is it, it's unequivocally the right move. Um, so I think that that kind of reckoning with that fact that we've we haven't managed transitions in the past very well, and we need to do them better in the future. This is a big one that's happening at the moment um, that we really need to get right. Um, as for is it is it too late? No, this this one's an easy one. I agree with my panelists here um, that it's it's very much not too late, and it's the, the same sort of narrative around when we talk about is it too late to act on on climate change? Um, even if we were pushing two point five degrees at the moment rather than one point two, you'd be fighting to stop at two point six or two point seven or whatever the next point one degree is, right? Um, so in that sense, I don't think it's too late. 
Um, also, you know, the, the qualitative nature of the transition is going to differ. So as Wendy brought up, like the transition is happening, but what we can fight for is what type of transition is going to happen. Um, and and that, that's where the fight is, right? Not whether or not the transition is going to happen. As for the final question, um, with involving indigenous people and, and how the just transition can speak to that, um, well, I think the, a, a just transition narrative can, um, particularly for, for any sort of, as Gareth has, has brought up, like um, a just transition as a sort of feminist narrative is something that um, isn't discussed nearly as much as it needs to be discussed. Uh, a just transition as something um, that, that focuses on youth as well, who are disproportionately affected by climate change is something that, that isn't discussed. Um, so focusing on indigenous people and, and generally any other marginalized groups um, just transitions stand to have the greatest benefit to those groups in particular. So when we talk about electricity, which is kind of what I know best, um, when we look at which communities are underserved or exist at the fringes of the grid and who would benefit most from the renewable energy transition, the majority of them are indigenous communities. So again, it's, it's in how we do the just transition that's important and which is why I stress that it's, it's not too late and it's worth fighting for in that respect um, because we need, to, we need to get it right and we need to ensure that those communities um, that stand to see the most from the just transition um, do see it um, and, and do see it before others. Um, so I'll leave it there. Thank you very much to Jan and to all of our speakers. Thank you uh, to everyone in the audience, those of you that have pitched questions. We didn't quite get a chance to go through them all, but if, if you've enjoyed what you've heard tonight, please do register for next week's events, which, keep to, uh, which aim to continue this conversation by inviting coal miners into the discussion. So next Tuesday, if you're on the University of Sydney campus, um, do come along to the new film by Vice and the Walkley Foundation called Conversations with Coal Miners Around Climate Change. The film screening will be followed by a discussion. So hear Grant Howard's story, a coal miner from Queensland who became a climate activist when he heard of a news broadcast that the atmospheric concentration of CO2 was at 410 uh, parts per million. As a coal miner, he is constantly checking CO2 and CH4 levels, and this alarming number inspired him to fight for a better future. So also be aware of other events in the Communities on the Frontline series. Um, do feel free to subscribe to the monthly Sydney um, Environment Institute um, newsletter and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So thank you very much for an absolutely uh, riveting panel uh, and, uh, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. So thank you very much and good night. <laughs>